Does God care about you? Well, we could go to 1 Peter 5 and chapter 7. It says, cast all your worries upon the Lord because he cares for you. So let's stand and sing. And yes, yes, he does. And we are, we're good to go. One of the things that is, I think, amazing about our God is that he is not content to just simply say, okay, I care for you, so I care for you. Take it at that. And as humans, we appreciate that because even in our relationships, it's not enough just to say to somebody, hey, I care about you or hey, I love you. We like the the actions and the pictures that come with that to help us understand and have that communicated uh, to our hearts. And God does the same thing. He understands that, that he doesn't just say, well, one time I told you in the Bible, I care for you. So that's good enough. Right. Uh, but instead gives us so many wonderful pictures to try to show to us uh, how much he cares for us. And in the book of Zechariah, that is exactly what God is doing through these visions. He is communicating these amazing images to help the people understand the different ways in which God cares for his people. And we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 2 tonight and observe those pictures. There's, uh, I believe, three different sections within that chapter. And in those three sections, we're going to see then how much God cares for his people. Let's read the first five verses of Zechariah chapter 2. Uh, and that'll be the first movement of this scene. Chapter 2 of Zechariah. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and its length. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. All right, really interesting first picture that's given to us is here is this image and you have uh, what appears to be an angel here, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And his goal in verse 2 is he's going to go measure Jerusalem to determine how big it's going to be. Now, remember, have a visualization of where we are. Jerusalem is in ruins. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The walls are torn down. They have not been rebuilt. We're at a time right now where we're in the process of rebuilding the temple. Never mind the city. The city uh, is in in shambles and in ruins. And Haggai and Zechariah as prophets have come on the scene to encourage the people to rebuild that temple, to not be discouraged by the authorities and the resistance that is come against them but to do the work that God has given him. And, and the first picture that immediately would, would be a so encouraging is here is the statement that in verse four, that Jerusalem is going to be restored. It's going to be inhabited. It is going to be a city again. Notice it's not, uh, we're going to go measure and we're not going to measure anything because Jerusalem's not going to exist and it's never going to come back. No, we're going to go measure its length and its width. But in the process of communicating, hey, we're going to have a new Jerusalem and it's going to be restored. You have a, an angel saying in verse four, go stop that man from measuring the length and the width. You might say, well, why would you why would you do that? Why do you want to stop him from doing that? It says, because we're not going to have walls on this city. 
And the reason why we're not going to have walls on this city is because of the absolute overwhelming number of people who are going to live there. It's going to be so numerous of people that you can't have any walls. And it's just going to be just strewn with people, strewn with animals. Just imagine this whole new city. Instead of it lying in ruins and having its walls, it's just going to be spread all over with all of these people. And that's the imagery that's being given to us in verse 4. There's just going to be so many people there that it's going to be uh, absolutely amazing and impossible to have walls to contain them. Now, for us, that might not sound too fantastic because we don't live in cities with walls anymore. If you were in that day and time to say that you were going to live in a city without walls, that'd be really dumb because you have to have walls for protection. That's what kept the enemies out. That's what defended you. You needed those walls and the bigger the walls and the wider the walls, then the better for the security and the protection of the people. And so you have this really crazy statement to say, now we're going to have this new Jerusalem built and there's going to be so many people there that we're just not even going to bother with the walls. And well, you would say, well, how are we going to be safe? Well, verse five, he says, here's why you're going to be safe is you're not going to need physical walls. Rather, God is going to be a wall of fire around you. God is going to be your defense. God will be your protection. And when you read that, that might cause a little bit of reminiscing and echoing back to the Exodus. You might remember when the people of Israel are leaving Egypt and they are coming to the Red Sea. And as they get backed up to the Red Sea, the people become concerned that God has brought us out here to die because Pharaoh has changed his mind, has sent the Egyptian armies after them. And you carefully read there in chapter 14, it speaks about how God was already leading them as a pillar of cloud and fire. And God moved his presence from the front of Israel to the back of Israel to stand as a wall between the oncoming Egyptian armies and the Israelites. And that's the imagery that's happening here is there's going to be this new city and there's going to be all this people and God is going to be your defense. He is going to be your protection. In fact, you'll notice at the end of verse five even says that I'm going to be in your midst. I'm going to be there with you. The glory is going to be in her midst because I am there with you. Now, in that picture, you're already getting a sense of Abraham's promise about all the offspring that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. We're going to have all of these people. They're going to belong as the people of God. And it would be too many for them to even be counted. And now you have a picture of a city without walls and God being a wall of fire and the glory of God in the midst of, of this city. And one of the things that I think it is interesting as you read a passage like that is it, it clearly comes to mind that this can't be talking about some physical, observable expectation that, well, when we get ready to rebuild Jerusalem, we just won't bother with the walls. In fact, after this book, I'm looking forward to doing Nehemiah with you, Lord willing. And Nehemiah's when he comes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, he doesn't say, well, we don't need walls because prophet Zechariah said Jerusalem's not going to have walls. And it's going to be God as a fire around us. And so never mind the wall project. And we're just going to wait for the fire of God to come. They understood 
that there was something bigger being talked about. They didn't read this and go, okay, everybody stop rebuilding Jerusalem because there's not going to be any walls. They didn't read it like that's funny to me how here we are in 2022 and people want to read it that way. They didn't even read it that way. They understood that we aren't talking about something physical, but we're talking about the power of the kingdom of God and what God was going to do for these people as they would return to the work and do God's will and great glory would come as God would be in their their presence. And so they're looking at it in a, in a different way and in a much more glorious way about when they come to, to do this work and God returns to be with his people, it is not going to be like before, but rather a powerful kingdom, a, a city without walls, that a, a group that would be so numerous that it could not be counted. And it would then be a group that was so numerous that it would even be protected by God. Now, I want you to think about even that idea of a countless number of people surrounded by the power and protection of God. I was thinking about this in putting this together that in 2020 we had a a, a census. So I looked it up. What did the count turn out to be for the United States of America? I didn't want to get down to the single individual, but 332 million people with a little bit more tacked on to the rest of that. And the reason that was striking to me is I thought, you know, we were able to count that. And God says, my kingdom and all of its people are so numerous, you can't even begin to count how many people there are. And do that with me for a minute. Just think about from the time Christ came, And how many people heard him and listened to him and became followers of him all the way to right now in 2020 in world history? How many people belong to the kingdom of God in the last 2000 years is beyond count. Never mind trying to then count to all the faithful before Christ's arrival. You have just a stunning picture. And it is reminiscent of what the book of Acts was showing where the count begins with 3,000 and moves to 5,000. And then it just starts talking about multitudes. And then you just finally, it's almost as Luke gives up. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, he just simply says, the church was multiplying. (laughs) Which just... We're not even going to try with numbers anymore. We were started with thousands. Forget it. It's just multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And here we are, this amazing multiplication of the people of God. This is what Zechariah has in mind, is that as you come and do this work and God is going to be with his people, it's going to be a countless number. And these people are going to be protected by God. And it's not going to be about having a city with walls and a geographic location but rather it's going to be people all over the globe and God will be a wall of fire about them and he will be in their midst and he's going to show that he cares for his people. That's the image that's being described here. And the reason why that's the first picture of God answering why we can know that God cares for us is because clearly he is showing us in great simplicity in a sense, we're not alone. You're not alone because you have a God that says, I will be your wall of fire and I will take care of you and I will watch out for you and I will protect you. 
And you're not alone because there are so many people who are following Jesus Christ, you can't even begin to start counting them. It would be as useless as going down to the ocean here and trying to count every speck of sand. That's how many people follow him. That's the vision here of what Zechariah gives. Remember when we were in Ezra, the number of people who came to Jerusalem could be counted. It was a few thousand. And now God says, oh, don't worry about the few thousand. This new city, this new Jerusalem, this people of God is beyond count. And I will be the walls around them. The second picture is in verse six. Verse six, Zechariah chapter two reads, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. And then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. All right, there is a lot happening in this picture that is just absolutely stunning. First, first picture, I think, is almost a little bit strange. If you think about the beginning of, of, of what this says, where he says, I want everybody to flee or run to Zion and flee from Babylon. Now, the curious thing about that is who Zechariah is talking to are the people who've already done that. These are the people who already had left Persia and Babylon. They were the courageous ones. They were the ones who had been numbered. They had decided to leave everything about them, leave everything about their lives, leave everything about their past, leave everything that they've ever known, and be willing to make the journey all the way back to Jerusalem. And now here Zechariah says, well, I need you to get up and flee Babylon and get to Zion. Now, I will admit, okay, maybe it's possible that somehow Zechariah's message was not intended for the audience and it was going to be written down and sent all the way back to Babylon and telling the rest of the people to come. But I don't think that's the issue. I think the picture is this, that even though these people as have, have left Babylon and here they have come back to Jerusalem and come back to Zion, they're there physically, but not in heart. You might remember what we saw in those first few chapters of the book of Ezra. Remember in those first few chapters, the people had come back, but then they were more concerned about their own houses and their own schedules and their own ways and their own things. And that's why Haggai has to come along and say, you're letting the temple remain desolate and here you are in your paneled houses. And I think it is interesting that this is something that God always has to warn us about. That God is always reminding us and warning us and telling us that you need to escape the culture that you are living in and not allow your heart and mind to be captured by it. For example, very one of the first times we see that idea is in the Exodus again, where you remember as the people come out of Egypt, there's all kinds of problems that exist. One, we find out they are carrying all their idols with them, which is stunning. 
Two, they're remembering how great it was to be back in Egypt. Remember all the food that we had and remember all that we enjoyed when we were back there. They're longing to go back to such a degree that they're even willing to stone Moses and Aaron so that they can go back to Egypt. They physically had left, but their hearts and their minds had not left. Same thing happens later on, or actually earlier on. You might remember if you grew up in the pews about Lot's wife. Sure, she's physically leaving, but the heart and the mind are still back in Sodom. And throughout the prophets, they'll talk about leaving Babylon. Well, they're physically out of Babylon. Why are you saying leave Babylon? Well, because the problem is we become so attached uh, to where we live, so attached to the culture and the world that surrounds us. And so the problem is that we can be set free and yet at the same time still be enslaved. Think of these New Testament passages that do the same thing. Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 and verse 13 reminds us, You have been called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as the opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is really a great image of it. You've been set free. So don't go back to the slavery. Don't go back to the sin. Don't let your mind and your your will and your desire go back to that Babylon. Leave that and come to the people of God and come to the city of God. Same thing in Romans chapter 6 and verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. I love that question that he puts forward. He says, you're slaves of sin and you were free from righteousness. How did that go for you? (laughs) How was life working for you when you're living your life that way? So then he makes the conclusion, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life, essentially. So why would you go back to the slavery? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first picture that's being given here is you've come back and God is trying to set you free. God is trying to free you from the enslavement, free you from the sin. So leave Babylon, leave the culture, leave the ways of the world and see what God is trying to give to you and appreciate the setting free and the liberty that comes from belonging to him. And he's going to give you the reason why. Notice verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. I I love the, the picture that is given here. There are two aspects to this idea where God says, now whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. And there's two, two concepts. One is probably even still around in our own terminology of the preciousness of who you are. You belong to God and God sees you that way. You are a treasured prized possession of God. You are valuable to him. You are meaningful to him and thus he cares for you. You are the apple of his eye. Also with it is something we also understand. If you talk about defending or protecting your eye, That is probably one of the most sensitive things that you have on on your body. You think about, it's amazing how an eyelid 
at a piece of just the littlest thing can just boom, just close and protect the eye before it even gets in. It's the most natural defense that you have. And that is also the imagery is this protection that is being given here. I'm protecting you and caring for you as if one who protects their own eye. That's what you are to me. I'm caring for you in that way. That's what you mean to me. And that's one of the pictures that's being given here. And that's what you notice verse 9 says. Those who had shaken their hand over them and those who had plundered you, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to plunder them. I'm protecting you. I'm caring for you. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to show that care for you. And one of the things that I think is so misunderstood about how God cares for us and the way God shows his care for us, this is going to sound probably strange on the surface, but it really is through his laws. His laws show how much he cares for us because these things are here for our own good, to keep us safe, to keep us from danger, to keep us from enslavement, to keep us from all the problems that come from a life of sin. I like to illustrate it a little bit like this. When when we were young, especially as teenagers, we were, you know, we were the smartest then. Uh, when we were teenagers and we knew everything, and we would look at the laws and the rules of our parents and just go, that's dumb. These are dumb rules. I don't get it. They're, they're ridiculous. And then somewhere along the line, you're able to get old enough to look back and go, oh, <laughs> I understand why those rules are in place. I thought they were foolish and ludicrous and oppressive when I was young and smart and independent and a teenager. But now that I'm an adult, I look back and go, oh, I see what my parents were trying to do. They were trying to protect me, keep me out of harm's way. They were understanding things that I didn't understand. Is it at all possible that God does that with us? We sit here and look at his laws and go, these are dumb and these are foolish and these are nonsensical and I don't understand and I know better. Maybe just maybe one day we'll all get to heaven and look back and go, although it all made sense. God is trying to show his care for us through his laws, through his teachings, what he's telling us to do. And God's showing that by saying, don't you understand that, that you're the apple of my eye? Don't you understand that, that I want to protect you like I was protecting my own eyes. That that's how much I care about you. And that's why everything I've said is for your good. Everything that I've taught you is for your good. Every law is, is for our good. And since we are the apple of his eye and his word is good to us, then leave Babylon. That's what this is tying to. So leave that. Because if we trust God that... His word is for our good. And he says that Babylon is dangerous and it's not any good for you. And you need to get free from that and just come to me. And it's going to be better for you that we would do it. It's what we would hope our kids would do when understanding. I'm saying these things for your good. It's going to be for your good in the end. And God is doing the same thing for us with this imagery, the apple of his his eye and how much he cares for us. Final picture, verse 10. 
Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Final picture is, he says there in verse 10, rejoice because God has come to live with you. In fact, he even says in verse 11, even nations are going to join themselves to you. The whole world is going to want to join themselves to the Lord. So sing and rejoice for what God has done that we can belong as his people. But I want you to notice something awfully strange that is said there in verse 11. Read it really carefully. The second half of verse 11. And I will dwell in your midst. Now you think God's talking, right? Just keep reading though. I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Wait a minute. Shouldn't that say, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that I have come to you. No, no. What a picture here. I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord has sent me, speaker, to you. An amazing prophecy is being declared here. And you might think, well, maybe the prophet's talking, but that doesn't fit at all. But rather you are seeing imagery of the Messiah. And what God is saying is you will know that the Lord has chosen you and that you belong to him when you see Christ in your midst. When he comes, then you will know that the Lord sent him to you. And that is your absolute proof. That God cares for you and that God is in your midst and that you are all these things to him as a prized and and precious possession to him. This is the power of what the gospel of John is doing when his gospel opens and he just simply says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Why is that so important to say We have seen his glory and he lived among us. Because God was saying back here in the prophets, when he comes, that's the proof of how much you mean to me and how much I care for you and how much I want to be with you and how I'm going to live with you that you will forever know how much the Lord Wants you with him. In fact, two verses later, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so, how do you know that God cares for you? How do you know that you belong to him? How do you know that you've been restored to the Lord and belong as his people and enjoy the privileges and benefits and blessings as his children? And all of this is Zechariah pointing and saying, There's going to be one to come who is sent by the Father, and that's going to prove God's love for you. And that's why the New Testament is always pointing back to the arrival of Christ and the cross of Christ 
as the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. The way that you can know that you are the apple of his eye, that you can know that he is a wall of fire about you, the way you can know that he cares for you deeply, the way you can know that he sees your condition and is there to help you, that we belong to this wonderful kingdom that is without walls and we have God as a fire about us. And the picture then is since you see who God is, And since you see how much God cares for you, then leave the worldly thinking. Enjoin your heart and join your mind in seeking the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You are precious to God. You are protected by God. And I want to just end by really just kind of asking one final question. What more could God do to show that he cares for his people? What more could he do to try to communicate how much every single person matters to him? The book of Zechariah says, here's the image. You will be a people that don't have to worry about where you live. You won't have to worry about walls. God will be your protection. God will be your provision. He will be your provider and he will care for you. And you will belong to such an amazing, innumerable count of people that you will be able to enjoy his blessings, enjoy all that he has to offer and will sustain you until you can finally enjoy what the eternal kingdom ultimately desires to be and that you would belong and enjoy with him. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, like the people in Haggai and Zechariah's day, it can be very easy to become discouraged as we attempt to do your will and things don't go the way we think they should. When we can deal with resistance, difficulties, rejection, persecution, mockery, there are just times where it can be difficult to Proclaim your name. And Lord, I pray just as those people needed encouragement, that you would fill us with the same encouragement to see who you are, to see how much you mean to us and how much we mean to you. And Lord, it is amazing, absolutely amazing to think that you are the almighty creator, all powerful God that you need no one, you need nothing, you sustain yourself and are in need of absolutely nothing. And yet you want us to be with you so badly. Lord, thank you for loving us like that. Thank you for being a wall of fire about us to care for us, to get us through our trials, to carry us through our pains and hardships. And Lord, thank you for giving us a kingdom of people that cannot be counted. That Lord, we know we belong to a group that is so vast, so numerous, not only in this present time all over the globe, but through time and space, there have been so many followers of you. 
Thank you for this family that we have. And thank you for always showing us that we are not alone, that we have you and that we have one another. Lord, strengthen our faith and lift up our hands to do the work that lies ahead of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight to see what you have in him and to see how much he cares for you. And I love that God wants to just give you picture after picture after picture to help you see what you mean to him. And we want you to come to him tonight. Turn away from your sins. Follow him faithfully. We encourage you to make that step now. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?